My guest is Dr. Hannah White. Hannah White is the acting director of the Institute for Government, a most respected British think tank which very much specializes in the machinery of government. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Thank you. You've been recently writing about how Liz Truss lost trust, and you've managed to pinpoint five areas where the new prime minister has been losing trust. And I think this conversation is particularly, will be particularly interesting, I think, because so much focus in the past, what, five weeks of Liz Truss's premiership have been focusing on her, her economic strategy, if you can call that, and the ideology underpinning that strategy, and less focus maybe on how she goes about doing her political job. So would you please tell our listeners why you think that Liz Truss has, has lost trust, and I may interrupt you along the way. Absolutely. So, I mean, in some ways, Liz Truss has, has committed a whole series of classic mistakes um, in terms of, of how to be effective as a government leader. Um, you often get prime ministers, ministers who uh, commit one or other of these errors, but she seems to have packed them all into an uh, extremely short period of time. Um, so the first thing which which uh, I think has been a problem is the way in which she has constructed and then sort of used her cabinet. Um, she, of course, the construction of her cabinet was uh, interrupted, her government was interrupted by the death of the of the Queen. Um, and so it was a, a slightly dysfunctional process. But what was very clear as the appointments came through was that she had deliberately chosen to exclude uh, people who had supported her uh, opponent, Rishi Sunak, in the leadership uh, campaign because they were the two going head to head. Um, and she she had chosen not to put any of those people in her cabinet. And that, I think, was a, a sign that she was you know, not keen on internal challenge. Now, the, the argument is that actually, if you're going to put out some quite controversial policies, it's, it's quite important to stress test those first. And having people that might disagree with you in cabinet is quite a useful way to do that. Also, possibly a way to bring your political party with you on something that might be quite controversial. She chose not to do that. She chose to go down quite a narrow uh, route and choose the people who she thought she could rely on to be loyal. Um, and in some ways, that's that's quite close to what Boris Johnson also did. And so sort of a continuity from his approach in that sense. And maybe, you know, you could argue might have been, you know, just she likes to be surrounded by people that agree with her. Maybe she wasn't totally confident that she would win uh, arguments, political arguments, with people who were uh, not of the same view. So that was her first um, error. On, on that one, then, can I, if I push back briefly, is it is it a sign also of insecurity or of her power that she can get away with it? Or is she storing up trouble for the future? Because there are already signs, right, that people who might have been included in the cabinet are now starting to make rather public disloyal comments about her. Yeah, I mean, I think it has created problems for her. Um, she straight away had Michael Gove, who was possibly one of the sort of highest profile uh, ministers under Boris Johnson, who she left out, uh, coming out quite strongly against some of her key policies, the 45p uh, tax cut, for example. Um, so, so that was problematic. We have already seen in this sort of whirlwind government, which is <laughs> packing quite a, what might be normally several years of events into a few weeks, uh, her starting to, I think, realise the error of her ways on this when she had when she lost a minister a few days ago over an ethical um, scandal, she replaced him with somebody who had been a Sunak supporter. So maybe a tiny sign there that she's realised that uh, she needs to accommodate the views of the other side of the party. So, the, and the next way that she's uh, lost trust, in your view? 
So the second thing is she deliberately deprived herself of experience. When she came into government, one of the first actions that she and her chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, took was to sack this most senior civil servant of the Treasury, the Finance Ministry, and uh, because they saw him as uh, too much identified with the previous, what they call Treasury orthodoxy, the sort of economic thinking that they uh, challenge and, and want to, to, to move away from. So they removed someone who actually had serious experience of dealing with crises, the financial crises and so on in the past, potentially therefore um, meant that they didn't anticipate some of the problems that came through when they announced what they what is being called euphemistically a, a mini budget with a very um, serious level of, of tax cuts. So they didn't anticipate the way the markets would react. And another problem is that she, you know, she, so she rejected that civil service advice. She also, in in number ten, she removed a lot of long-standing advisors, which you would expect if it was a, part, a new government of a, of a different political hue coming in. But in many ways, you know, this is a, still a conservative administration. There were conservative uh, supporting advisors in number ten who she removed in order to bring in her own supporters, many of whom are, you know, very young, enthusiastic, and keen, but don't necessarily. And loyal to her, crucially again, uh, but don't necessarily have that that long-standing experience that is really valuable when it comes to difficult situations in government. On this question of treasury orthodoxy, this may seem a bit naive, but uh, aren't civil servants there to do to do the, whatever their political masters tell them to do? I mean, they they obviously assume that Tom Scholar might sort of get in the way, but at the same time, like any good professional civil servant, he has to, even if he doesn't agree with it, he'd have to do what they say. So why why sack him? Well, I think um, I think this is absolutely how it is supposed to work. I think there are a number of sort of thoughts about why they did it this way. One was as a signal. This trust today definitely came in wanting to, to show that she was going to be radical and that she didn't mind upsetting people. And I think that, you know, there were lots of ways to get rid of civil servants and doing it dramatically on, on your first day in this way without giving them a chance to sort of gain your confidence is a very symbolic move. There's also sort of um, gossip about whether they had fallen out and had a personal disagreement when Liz Truss, in an earlier part of her career, had worked in the Treasury and whether he had um, got in the way of, uh, of something that she had tried to do at that point. And therefore, she, there was some level of personal animosity there. And again, it may not be uh, qualified as a classic U-turn, but aren't there signs that she's she's not going to get away with an effect, nor Kwarteng in in nominating their their first choice as a scholar's replacement and having to go with somebody who's more of an experienced treasury hand. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. So they have had to choose a new person to lead the treasury. There was talk of various more radical treasury outsiders for that role. Um, But in the end, the person they've uh, ended up appointing, James Bowler, has worked in the treasury, also other places, but in the treasury for 20 years of his career. And I think, again, that was, they realised that in a situation where they have spooked the markets, where the markets are looking at these series of things which we're identifying and talking about today and saying, can we trust this government? Are they going to make good decisions? They've chosen to signal that actually, you know, this is a person who 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 knows how things work in the Treasury and is going to be giving them good advice rather than a more wildcard sort of person. Does that mean that Treasury orthodoxy is back then? <laughs> well, that remains to be seen. I mean, I think... You know, I think um, Quasi Kwarteng will be very much uh, emphasising the government's growth agenda. That's the sort of edict that's gone out to the Treasury and that, you know, rather than focusing on balancing the books and sort of cash flow, the Treasury's got to be at all times focused on growth. That's his attempt to challenge 
the orthodoxy of the treasury as it is i think you know it there's a limit to how much influence that sort of um edict can have it's you know more to do with uh, the history of how the treasury has operated within government uh, the way it's structured there's definitely more to be done if you want to make the treasury work differently i'd say and so the next way that she has lost trust um, so she's actively, and this has been very visible, rejected evidence and analysis which could help inform her policy making. Here at the Institute for Government, we are very keen on evidence-informed policy, and that politicians, you know, don't have to, to follow the evidence, but they should at least be aware of what it is, and when they're making decisions, should look at all the available data um, and analysis. And the first, one of the first things that Truss and and Quarteng said was because they wanted to, re- to respond so quickly uh, on, on, gain- on coming into um, office to the economic situation, uh, they wouldn't have time to consult the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is this independent institution set up by George Osborne deliberately uh, in order to stop uh, chancellors being able to massage their own um, uh, figures in terms of what the future sort of growth of the economy and so on would look like as a background to the measures they wanted to introduce at a budget. So she said, oh, there just won't be time for the OBR to do what it would normally do, which is do an assessment of the sort of future uh, trajectory of the economy and the impact of government plans on that trajectory. Now, uh, we know that that actually, uh, A, wasn't true. The OBR knew that this was coming up and was actually quite interestingly public about the fact that it would have stood ready um, in the timescale they had put forward to provide the sort of analysis they would have needed. So, so that was implausible and it made it very clear that she was rejecting that advice. But, yeah. it, but it, it strikes me as a, a kind of, a, to say the least, a flawed strategy because they said they would at some point anyway, whether it's in November or even at the end of this month, October, publish the OBR analysis. So they were they were just putting off the inevitable, weren't they? Uh, delaying the pain, if you like. I don't quite, as a non-specialist, understand why they, they did this. No, I mean, it is not clear why they did this. As you say, at some point, they were going to get what were very seriously revised forecasts over the forecasts that the OBR had previously given in uh, March. There's a legal requirement for the OBR to do two forecasts during each financial year. They hadn't done any. So there was going to have to be one pretty much before Christmas and another one in the spring. And as you say, at that point, that was going to sort of show just how much borrowing was going to be involved in the plans that they were putting forward. The other point, uh, which I was going to go on to make, is that, you know, the urgency that Truss and Kwarteng sort of claimed there was around having to come out, and which was why they couldn't consult the OBR, was actually only urgency around the energy package that they announced. So the the mini budget consisted of what the government was going to do to support people around energy prices, but then a whole set of tax cuts. Now, yes, it is true that the country was really waiting to find out what the government was going to do, both for the public and for businesses in relation to energy prices, and that there was some criticism that that had happened very slowly over the summer because of the leadership election process. Yes, there was urgency around that. There wasn't the same urgency around the tax cuts. Um, And it was just that from a political point of view, Trust wanted to get that out there. But the markets took a dim view of the fact of a a government making such sweeping uh, tax cuts without any indication of how they were going to fund them and rejecting independent advice uh, in the course of doing so. And is there still confusion and uncertainty? Because Ron hears mixed messages about the, 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 the publication, final publication of the OBR analysis. When's it coming out? 
So we think now it is coming out on the 31st of October when the uh, government is going to set out its medium-term fiscal forecast where we're hopefully going to get, the markets are hoping for more Mm. uh, information about how the government intends to fund these tax cuts that it's uh, that it's said it wants to do. All right. And and the next way that she's lost trust, the Prime Minister. Yeah, so this is a this is a sort of a point which actually can be seen more more generally in Truss's approach, but she she's she's generally quite skeptical of the value of institutions. So we've talked about uh, you know her 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 not really seeing the the, the point from her point of view of, of the OBR, neglecting the sense that actually it was important from the market's point of view to have their analysis. Uh, she's been, she was over the course of her leadership campaign, critical of, of the role of the, of the Bank of England and the, the government's gone a bit backwards and forwards on how important the independent role of the Bank of England is. She's also actually done it in wider spheres around um, ethics regulation. She said, you know, I just think we have too many um, uh, rules and regulations in this space and it ought to be more for the sort of uh, individual politicians to police their own ethical conduct. So I think, you know, this is, again, a general sort of sense from her government that institutions aren't that important if you have politicians who are who are making the right calls. And I think, you know, she may well feel that way. She's undervaluing the extent to which uh, the people around her, the markets, the public, uh, her political party have confidence if those other things are being neglected. And on the specific, though, of Bank of England uh, independence, isn't she yet again sort of rowing back and saying it's the Bank of England which sets interest rates and so we're not going to interfere, whereas before she was sort of giving people to understand that that might no longer be their role, their, yeah, their I mean, exclusive I th- role? I, th- I think over the course of the leadership campaign, it was mostly around the kind of... Um, uh, the inflation target for the Bank of England, and, and there was some questioning around, you know, whether whether that was 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 the right thing. What the government seems to be quite happy to do now is to say, well, if interest rates go up, and specifically mortgage interest rates for the public, that's nothing to do with us, Gov. That's just, uh, you know, that's the Bank of England, and completely sort of uh, notionally breaking the logical link between uh, what the government is doing and the fact that. If the Bank of England raises interest rates, that is a response to government policy and a response to what is happening to inflation as a result of government policy. So, uh, yes, she's been much keener to say this is just the Bank of England when it's been a question of interest rates going up and up. OK. And then the final area, please. Uh, so the final point is around scrutiny um, and that this trust really hasn't prioritised and in this, again, there's some, some continuity from her predecessor, Boris Johnson, but she hasn't prioritised parliamentary scrutiny. In her hurry to get her mini budget uh, out uh, and to announce her proposals, because of the uh, the sad death of the Queen, um, there's only a short period when Parliament sits in September. Um, and rather than wait, uh, as you normally would, uh, the normal system is you have a sort of budget type statement and then the House of Commons would debate that for five days, looking at lots of different angles on it before the legislation was brought in to give effect to it. Instead of doing that, uh, Trust and Quarteng decided to announce their mini budget, which they said was not a budget, but was certainly doing you know, uh, many more things than you would get in a typ- typical budget on the last day between before um, Parliament rose for the conference recesses, um, which meant there was about two hours of debate before MPs went off 
for several weeks. At that point, Parliament wasn't due to sit until the, the middle of October. So there was no opportunity for MPs to discuss, to debate, to test the ideas that had been set out. And that, again, I think uh, made the markets, made the public, made the action very much, well, you know, are these people who are not confident in their plans? They don't want to have them contested. They just want to sort of to put them out there. Are they are these really robust plans? And this is another way in which the um, confidence in what the government was, uh, was doing, trust in government was undermined. Right. You've referenced a couple of times now Boris Johnson, our predecessor, Liz Truss's predecessor, uh, also being uh, kind of keen on some of this behaviour as it were. So my question simply is, to what extent is what you've been talking about now, these five areas where Liz Truss has lost trust, uh, are, are sort of unique to her or, frankly, even before Boris Johnson, some, you know, some prime ministers indulged in at least some of these practices or not? I think it's certainly the case that, you know, some indulged in one or other, a few of these at certain moments in time. I think Boris Johnson, we certainly saw from a sort of ethical uh, point of view, from a parliamentary scrutiny point of view, wasn't that bothered, wanted to rely on his own judgment, wasn't particularly interested in giving MPs a say. We saw that during the Brexit process, for example. On the economic front, though, I think things were different because uh, Boris Johnson had Rishi Sunak as a chancellor who was a bit more keen on on playing things by the book and, uh, you know, proper role for the Bank of England, proper role for the ABR, not running up lots of debt. And these arguments he then made in the leadership campaign trying to, you know, to become prime minister, which didn't go down well against Liz Truss, who was sort of promising the mm. earth in terms of cuts and things that she, uh, were tax cuts that she was willing to do. So I think from a from an economic point of view, where it has gone so wrong, is that some of these more general approaches uh, to sort of a, a bit of a, uh, a lack of, of robustness and seriousness around using the institutions, the checks and balances, the evidence that's out there to support politicians in doing government, where, it, where it's gone wrong is that that has all um, come together around a really ambitious uh, programme. You know, ambitious is the positive word for it. Others would say reckless. Right. Um, and the markets have just taken fright. And what might, you know, you know, and who can who can replay history? What might, if you had laid the groundwork, consulted the OBR, um, you know, allowed time for discussion, brought in all these different checks and balances which are there, which are designed to make government work effectively? What, what you know, you might have gone through as a kind of, well, gosh, this is radical, but you know. Uh, we're going to see how it plays out, actually really spooked the markets and created a very sort of self-perpetuating cycle of difficulty for the government. And maybe another way of uh, maybe asking the same question, Hannah, but a different angle is you worked in government as well in the past as a civil servant, and I presume you have many conversations with erstwhile colleagues. To what extent is this current situation particularly egregious? Uh, is, it, is, it just, well, is it a growing trend, but we're getting close to a kind of tipping or even a breaking point where enough is enough we can't go on like this i think the difficulty with government with civil service with parliament with all these institutions is the precedence is really important mm. so once you've done something one way once the ease with which you can then do it again right, right. Is, yeah. um, is much much greater the other thing that i think is is significant in this context something pointed out to me this morning and i hadn't clocked this but that of the current cabinet only one member has ever been an MP in opposition. And so the normal self-fulfilling restriction that you would put on yourself of, well, you know, I won't do that because I could be in opposition and I wouldn't want to see the opposition 
take account yeah. of that light flexibility or uh, that alternative precedent that's just not playing on their minds in the same way as as it would be if you did if you had a government that hadn't effectively been in power for 12 years so that you know there's there's maybe a slightly more free slash reckless approach to some of these right. things because the prospects and the reality of being in opposition and watching your political opponents do these sorts of things just isn't there. Okay. Well, we're going to finish this off briefly by by looking to the future, Hannah. I mean, I know you're not a, I don't think you're a professional pundit per se, but I'm sure you have your own views. What what happens next? You hear all these stories flying around. Trust will be out before Christmas. There'll be a early general election. There'll be a ta- caretaker prime minister, and so on and so on. What is what's going to happen from your point of view? In the next week, the months. I can't tell you what's going to happen. I'll tell you some of the factors that I think are in play. So we've got the same factor that we had with Boris Johnson, which helped him, which is, although there was a period during which his party thought maybe they probably should be getting rid of him, there wasn't an obvious successor. That is still the case. There are various people None of them is universally seen as the right um, alternative. You know, there's certainly a, a sort of strand of thought that says, you know, Rishi Sunak predicted all this. P- perhaps he should be called in at this point. But there's a, also a big strain of thought in the party, which is he was the one who did for did for Boris Johnson in resigning when he did. Right. And actually, so we can't, you know, kind of a traitor leading the party would be their kind of uh, a paraphrase of their of their thinking. So. The fact there is no obvious alternative that the party can definitely coalesce around, because what I think they really don't want is another leadership process. They don't want the delay that would involve as, as we run up to, you know, another election has to be within two years time. They don't really want to involve the membership again, because if the membership landed them with <laughs> with the trust, um, then, you know, potentially they're going to end up with another bad option. So I don't think they'll be keen on that. So that, that acts in her favour for her staying. Also, I think that Conservative MPs are pretty depressed. They can see the real prospect of losing their seats at the next election, very many of them. Mm -hmm. I don't think they'll want to accelerate that process. You know, I think even though they can see they might lose badly, I don't know that they think it's going to get much worse. Maybe it could get a bit better. Why would, you know, and they, so they will want to sort of try to provoke various policy U-turns, I should think, around the sorts of things she's proposed. But when it gets to the point of, if she decides to make this a vote of confidence, um, will they precipitate a general election and potentially lose their seats two years earlier than they might? I'm not convinced they will, unless something radical happens to, to the polling. My only other thought is that, you know, actually, as I said, you know, Truss is quite a sort of imp- impetuous politician. She makes, uh, you know, she's she's quite obstinate. Um, and she also you she also u turns a lot, doesn't she? She, well, she's she's had to U-turn. I mean, she's right. really not had a lot of choice on these things, I think. But what I'm, I'm wondering is that if you take the combination of lack of experience in her team, mm. those personal characteristics, they, there remains a risk, I think, that she accidentally gets into a situation where she loses a vote of confidence um, and we end up having a general election sooner than anyone planned because she's she's refused to U-turn on something. She's she's tried to face down her critics and mm. they have actually voted down something which would be seen as a vote of confidence. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Unpredictable times ahead, to say the least. Hannah White, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.